With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to XYZ, the podcast about CNC, automation, robotics, business, and more. My name is Aaron Goff, owner of Goff Custom Knives, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Frank, from the Frank Brothers Guitar Company. How are you today, mate? Uh, good day. Good day. I'm good. <laughs> that's... You always call me mate, wow. so yeah, that's hit true. you back. <laughs> How's your day been? Pretty good, yeah. I've been um, working on the gantry router. Hmm. All Why? day for the morning. I wish I didn't have to. No, it's, oh, you're it's good. Making parts, Actually, you're I'm, not like fixing. Yeah, I was making parts. Right, right. No, no, no. Although we did have a power outage last night, I've been leaving the the router on, mm. um, so that because every morning when I've if I, I turn it off, I have to recalibrate it. Right. Um, and so I've just been leaving it on, and this morning I had to calibrate it because it had turned off. So it was fine though. Yeah, actually, it was de- dead nuts. Perfect. So when you say calibrate, you mean like home, right? Uh, I mean, so I ch- I I check it with a dial indicator. I put a dial indicator into the into the spindle. Oh, and then you and like I, run it around. I, the I probe right. two points um, at the, on the table. Uh, three points on the table. One is my G fifty four, which is like our our like where we live, what everything's based off of, right. and uh, I can tell how far off I am right. from where we we are, where the program thinks it is. Gotcha. So it's homing with extra steps because it's a shitty CNC runner. Yeah, you know <laughs> I've got a new respect for it after after having like uh, had to to do that again. Like I used to do that every day, and it was just driving me nuts. And I think that was one thing that was just killing my soul. Right. Um, but now just leaving it on has basically solved that problem, I guess. It has. I still have a lot of tool probing to do, or t- like touching off tools to do. Right. Right. Uh, so, yeah, fired it up. Good to go. Uh, I was, I've was. i been doing a big batch of plastics. Mm. So we make all our, all our own pick, up, pick guards, pick up surrounds, like the rings that go around a, a humbucker, for example. Right. Truss rod cavity covers, electronics cavity covers, uh nuts like a bunch of bunch of stuff nice. so i was just like i'm gonna put the this tool set in i'm gonna run as much of the stuff as i possibly can and then two and a half days later i'm done <laughs> right yeah because uh, that's something you could build stock of right it's well kind of uh there's a there's a couple parts that are pretty common mm. but the pick guard correlates to the pickups that we use so, like, if I'm doing sort of like it, I did right. a double humbucker guard in acrylic. Right. So you would have to cut like I did, every combination of every color, which doesn't. Yeah. Make sense. So I have a stack of spec sheets that, I, and I'm making to order. Right. Each part. We would. What we would like to do is just cut a pick guard blank that doesn't have the pickup routes cut into it, mm. and then be able to put that back on the machine, and route whatever custom pickup configuration that customer's getting into a sort of stock guard hmm. interesting what about um getting a, a little cheap shitty cnc router just for that job uh but tool changing i would need tool changer to, just to cut the pickup cutouts? oh just to cut the the well so oh just to cut the pickup cutouts yeah like huh. i was just wondering whether you could you know have like stock of the different of the different types of um, yeah. Pick guards, and then like a little machine right next to it. You know, you just like it's put a pretty one interesting in idea because one of the things is like, you know, I'm trying to do this so that Tim, who does all the assembly of the guitars, oh, doesn't have do, to. It talk doesn't to you. run in. Well, he he doesn't run into. He doesn't have to come and be like, "Hey, I need I need this guard," because I find that really annoying when he's like, 
I'm in the middle of doing my shit. Yeah, yeah. Is important for production. And he like comes up to me. He's like, I really need like a pick up pick guard in tortoise shell with fucking Tim mini humbucker in the neck and a humbucker in the bridge. And it's like, ugh, I'm busy. I love that you're doing like a. Uh, and uh, like an impersonation of him. Oh, I'm sorry, I need to. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and and he sounds dumber normally. Oh, so yeah. he listens to this. So oh, does he? <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm chirping him. Fuck you, Tim. Um, <laughs> yeah, like maybe a little machine. You know, like if you had, well, uh, you know, like a little stock of of pre cut pick guards that didn't have the pickup cutouts, and a little yeah, machine. Yeah. So what that would be cool about that? Bits, you know? Is that that could live next to Tim's bench, and he could just yeah, exactly run those and yeah i have thought about that for nuts because uh that's something that he just could make on demand Mm. but part of me also just wants to transfer this over to the hoss or do it in big like like get get rid of all the the once once all our other production is transferred over to the hoss uh be able to put big sheets down on the router on the the gantry router right because that's one of its like one of the features of that machine is that it's got a big table. Yeah. Big, big uh, footprint. Envelope, One thing I will uh, say is that um, for little jobs like that, it's a real pain in the ass to have to take here, like a high value machine that's, you know, could be mm-hmm. spending un- un- uh, uninterrupted time doing something more important just to do yeah. one little shitty job. You know, like I find that with um, sheaths and with handle scales, right? Like, you know, I would ideally love to be keeping my machines running, doing hard milling all the time. But I often have to interrupt that flow because I need like, oh, some handle scales. I need a sheath. You know? Right. Um, so, yeah, like it's kind of nice to, you know, particularly if you could get away with just like one tool, you know, like a really simple machine. It doesn't have a tool chain yeah. or anything. Um, could potentially be really nice. It's a cool idea. Um, I mean, the other thing is... Like if we get, we we plan to move all the, can you hear the, my ear compressor? Yeah, that's fine. Then. Okay. All right. It's loud in my ear. Um, if we transfer all the woodworking over to the Haas, like we plan to, mm-hmm. we have this, you know, f- five by four uh, router right. that is just going to be sitting there. Uh, so the plan was we would put sheets down and cut pick guards and that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, and it could just run in the background while I'm using the Haas, but it's never really that simple. It's like, you know, <laughs> any machine that you have to turn on and run, it takes labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm just, part of me is just holding it to sell it and buy another Haas. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I actually really like the idea of like having machines almost as like appliances, you know, like your, your coffee maker, right. Except like this one machine makes sheaths, mm-hmm. you know, like I, you know, so like sheaths for me are kind of a, an example of that same kind of bottleneck where it's a, it's a fairly simple process. It only needs one tool, but like I can't run sheaths on my machine while it's doing something else, you know, so having like a kind of a, you know, okay-ish CNC router that just has, you know, no, to, no tool changer, no nothing dedicated possibly to that process makes a lot yeah. of sense yeah um yeah i need to think about that more because you get excited about a new machine you just want to abandon <laughs> the, the other one but uh it you know you go and you see like a factory tour and that's they, they have all this dedicated yeah equipment like custom made tooling just to do one small process because mm-hmm. it's just it's so efficient yeah 100 percent so, I mean, that's what's so good about, you know, we have these very versatile machines and we can throw a bunch of stuff at them. That makes sense for small businesses. Yes. But definitely, like, if you're doing mass production. I mean, it doesn't even have to be mass, I suppose. Yeah, I mean. If you're just being efficient. Yes. Yeah, if you've got the space and you're trying to be efficient, I think that sometimes single-purpose machines like that make a lot of sense. Like, particularly mm-hmm. if you have, like, a station kind of dedicated to one part of the process and you can just kind of roll production into that station you know yeah then that's super super sweet as long as you have space for it yes and people to run it yeah i guess so yeah for me it's about trying to get more spindles running in parallel 
You know, like I said, yeah. like I want to have my, because my cycle times are so long, I want to have my machines running constantly doing hard milling. Mm-hmm. And then all of the stuff that, because every time you interrupt a process, you know, so like if I'm waiting for a break in the cycle so that I can like swap the fixture plate out and do something else, then generally that ruins like an entire day's worth of production on that machine. You right. know, like I'll have downtime while I'm changing the fixtures over and then, you know, maybe I need to eat or, you know, maybe I need to go and do something else real quick to, you know, get a knife out the door for a customer or you know something. And, you know, the timeline just gets messed up and it, it eats up a lot of production time. So for me, just being able to like, yeah, keep those more valuable machines tied up with more valuable processes makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that does make a lot of sense. Well, I'm not saying it has to be what you're doing. I'm just saying for me, I think it makes sense. No, I mean, it makes me, it makes me think. I, the thing is, we're, we're still not fully using the Haas. Right. Like, I bet you as soon as it's really up and running, it's not going to have a free minute. Yeah, 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 totally. And we would, we're just, tr- we, the plastics is such a big bottleneck for us because we kind of, we run them one at a time because they're so customized. Right. And the, the router does a great job, but it is slow. It's just slow. What about like some... every tool change is slow? Mm-hmm. And um, what about a CO two yeah. laser for for acrylics? Could you use? I don't know how they do. They they. I'm sure they would do a great job of acrylics. Yes. I don't know how they deal with ABS, which is the the other common plastic we use. Mm. And the the other one that we use is. Um, cellulose acetate right. and cellulose nitrate. You probably don't want to put in a laser, right? I don't know. I mean, they may. It could just burst into flames. Maybe it would be fine. Yeah, I don't know. Well, if anyone listening has any experience with ABS or with cellulose, like hit us up for the for the next episode. For um, you know, let us know how that would work on a CO two laser because I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, same. An EDM. How about that? Uh, not for plastics, but <laughs> I would love one for me. Not, for, not so much for you. I've actually been. Um, would that work? It wouldn't work in plastic. No, no, it has to be an electrically conductive material. Right, unfortunately. Um, I've been, yeah, struggling with some stuff this week as well. The the fixtures that I was so clever making for the fixture knife, for the uh, kitchen knife, uh, uh-huh. suck. They totally um, suck. Uh... So I've developed a process that works okay with fresh tools. And then the second the tools get even slightly dull, it goes to hell and starts like overheating really? the blades. Yeah. Um, how, uh, how fresh does the, the like end mill have to be? First first knife. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, you, yeah, okay. Tool, tool life is an issue then. Yeah, and it's just because... <laughs> it's not getting past one blade. Yeah, exactly. But how, how bad is that? I guess that's pretty bad. It's pretty bad, yeah. In this case, like, it, I think it's just because I left some space underneath the part in Op2. So I want to machine the second side of the fixture. And I didn't think it was going to be an issue, but it really is. It's humming? Um, it's actually pushing Vibrating? the steel down, like, out of the way. Oh. And then, so if the tool's really crisp and fresh, it'll cut. But if it's right. not like perfectly fresh, it just pushes the part down and then like the tool's just rubbing against the part. And so the, the right. tool and the part both end up like red hot. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it goes it goes to hell really quick. Um, um what kind of depth of cut are you taking? Like, is it pretty light? Yeah, it's only a couple you're of hard milling. Huh. So yeah, I've been tr- I was actually just like staring at Fusion 360 all afternoon trying to work out how to redesign this and i think i'm actually going to do something kind of similar to the saunders machine works uh fixture plate that you have oh really yeah so i think basically i'm gonna um have like i'm gonna add like an op zero where you're you're clamping just gently on the side because the the material is quite thin it's like three inches wide and it's only an eighth of an inch thick right um so you can't really put a lot of clamping force into the side otherwise it'll just potentially bow right so hang onto it lightly from the side um, come and machine some, like drill some holes around the periphery of the part and then face the whole top surface so that I get a, a known thickness and then bolt it down right just around the periphery of the part. Because right now I'm bolting it down, but further away at the edge of the stock. 
And then when I get to the second side, it's just not enough support. Right. Um, so bolting in closer and also facing that whole top surface will let me have a flat surface, fixture surface right underneath the part on op two and then bolt it down close to the cutting. Right. Um, and I think that's going to fix it. Well, I mean, so what, what, these are your first, this is your first fixture. Yes. For this. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's not too bad. I think when I was less experienced, I would have like tried harder to make this work. Right. You know, but now I'm just like, this is a stupid idea. I should have made it in this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And the reason I would do it, like a, I basically, I'm thinking that I'll do a grid of holes that are, have a quarter inch bore at the top for the first like three eighths. And then underneath mm -hmm. that, it's a quarter 20 thread. Um, and the reason I'm thinking about doing that is because I would really like to be able to run other, um, like low volume and prototype parts on these fixtures. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't want it to be like only for the kitchen knife and I can't run anything else. So I think, I think the grid will work. I think that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Fingers crossed. We, um, I wish we could take advantage of the, the Saunders fixture plate more. Mm. Cause I mean, we really bought it because it was a very well-priced, uh, table right that, that we otherwise would have would have been probably the same price for us to make um and uh but we it, it is nice it's really nice and it'd be nice to be able to use it like like a real fixture plate right because like I, I like i really like his um uh what's it called he's got like this this mini vice system oh the mod like vice part the mod vice yeah that seems clever yeah um, cause I would love to be able to, to have a vice on this machine mm. for running random things, um, tools or like making little parts. Right. Um, but yeah, we, there's no area on, on the table where we could, can access a machinable part. Right. Like space on the table. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe just get one and see when you end up using it. Um, so what's, what's the next step for you then? How are you going to, um, so thankfully I built this fixture in a modular fashion. So the two parts that I have to replace are steel blocks and on their underside, they have, um, threaded holes and locating pins. Okay. Um, so you don't need to replace the main base of it. You just have to replace yeah, just the, the machined exactly sections. Yeah. Um, so I may actually replace a few of them because I screwed it up initially and machined them too low, um, which has caused more problems than I thought it would because my tool holders are all really stubby and it means that I actually right. can't reach in a couple of places. Um, <laughs> so I had to like have more tools stick out than I normally would in order to right. compensate, right? So yeah, like the, the biggest cost in that fixture is the base plate, which is... Um, a 16 inch by 22 inch piece of one inch thick aluminum. Wow. Pretty significant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, as I said, like I just have dowel pins and everything in there so I can, I can pull those off. I can machine new um, modules uh, just, you know, with holding them in a vice and then bolt them down and I'm good to go. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to try too hard to like save that material and blah, blah. I think I've kind of reached the, sensible cutoff <laughs> right for just fucking doing it again <laughs> um, sometimes it's uh easier to start from scratch 100 percent. yeah I, I i like starting from scratch actually i hate trying to fix things right well and yeah so the other thing that i had happen the other day so i i've, I've been telling you for you know the longest time that i really like end mill holders for for work yeah. holding um so three or four weeks ago we talked about it on the show i actually switched the machining process for my hunting knife, the Resolute, over to 100% hard milling. Um, yeah. And as part of that process, I actually started doing some side cutting with the end mills. And normally I don't do any side cutting. I'm just using the tip, just doing like huh. high feed, high feed style machining. Mm -hmm. um, and that has kind of done a number on those end mill holders. I've, um, I'm not sure whether I've just like been a little bit too aggressive or what, but it's, it's actually started galling the inside bore of the end mill holders oh, at really? the mouth of them. Yeah. And so like the tools are actually like 
getting twisting? stuck in there. Oh, I, I, fuck I, how? I haven't seen much evidence that they're twisting. It's just it looks like they're almost like um, cold welding themselves in place. Oh, it's the heat from or just the pressure or something. Something's going on. So I've decided. So are you not as hot on? Uh, well, you know, I think those... I think you can get away with them for a lot of stuff. It's just in this case, I'm roughing aggressively right. in hard steel <laughs> with a tool that has no flat. You know, so it's. I think I'm oh. really kind of pushing my luck a bit. Right. Um. So I actually did something that I've been meaning to do for the longest time. So I switched back yesterday. I switched back to ER collets for that operation. ER collet tool holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons that I really disliked ER collets for, for hard milling is because you're machining dry, you're using air blast and you're creating really tiny chips and those tiny yep. chips just go straight up through the slots in the ER collet. Tell me about it. Yeah. And then it's almost impossible to get them all out, which means that when you loosen the collet off, you end up, um, rubbing a bunch of those little chips in between the collet and the the face, like those nice precision faces in your tool holder, right. and just you know tearing everything up. Like it, it's really hard on collets and and on tool holders. Um, so for a long time, I've been thinking that I should either buy. So you can actually buy these tool holders that have coolant sealing discs that go in the yes, front yeah. of the tool. Um, but they're kind of expensive and you can't buy them from Maritool. So I don't want them. Um, <laughs> so what I actually ended up doing was just 3d printing little on my FDM printer, little discs that have like a, a press fit, like a tight fit around the tool in the middle. And then they just block the front of the collet. Oh, genius. I need some of those. They're like, <laughs> like two cents each to print. Oh, um, that's a great idea. So I started I running like those some. today and they're, yeah, I can make you some. They seem, they seem to be working great. Um, because you know, I, I, I have the same problem, but mine is just wood dust. You just so it's not pack the, the collet full of wood dust, I guess. Right. Yeah. Oh man. Some tools that last a really long time. I'll, when I go to replace them, I'll just, they're just full of dust. Right. Uh, but yeah, not marring the inside of the tool holder, obviously just gets a little gunky. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I can imagine like if you're, packing that full of fine uh, metal dust eat not a good scene yeah and because it's like a blind hole you can't blow air through it very effectively right there's just no way to get it all out you know right so yeah i mean i i'm actually going to be throwing out a couple of like collet nuts and collets um damn i just have to buy replacements because they're just trashed you know so and yeah. and using them as they approach that condition isn't good you know, because your runouts getting worse as they get worn and, and so on. So, yeah, it's such a small thing. I should have done it ages ago. And it basically means that I'm going to be able to, like, not even have to clean collets in between in between tool changes, I don't think. That'd be slick. Yeah. Um, what about uh, getting some of Mari Tools um, uh, hydraulic tool holders? Yes. So Frank is just about to get the Cat 40 hydraulics. He's been waiting for them uh for a while to to come into stock um so i yeah i don't know like i think i'm gonna get two of them they're gonna be about i think he said they're gonna be about 200 us dollars each which is very reasonable for a hydraulic Mm -hmm. but that's still two er holders yeah for one the price of one hydraulic so i suppose yeah yeah i don't know it like I think I want to try one and see if like there's a couple of processes where I, I tend to build up a little bit of resonance in the tool and in the part mm. and hydraulics are supposed to be very, very good for damping, like to, right. to damp out that kind of resonance. So I'd be curious to try them and see if it damps that out. If it does, then it's probably worth it. If it doesn't, then I think I would stick with the ER mm-hmm. tool holders at this point. It does seem nice for replacing tools though. So nice. You just loosen off the, the like clamping screw and yeah it's it it doesn't have to be torqued down like super hard either it just has to be like kind of snugged down do they does it have a torque tolerance like should you be using a torque wrench um i don't know about frank frank's ones but in the past i've used shunk tendo um -hmm. holders and with oh you have yeah and with those you just bottom the screw out and that's it that's your torque tolerance there's no you don't need like a special wrench or anything 
does it even do you feel the tension that does it like the tension increase as you go to bottom it out not well not really no it just hits a, huh. it just hits the bottom of the the board it. it's like a hard stop yeah so i bought two um of the shunk tendo tool holders previously um and they are very expensive i think yeah. i paid like four hundred dollars each for those canadian no i think that was us hmm. right so those are expensive holders yeah, um, and I ended up returning them because the inside depth uh, for the like the the kind of cavity where you put the tool was only like an inch and and a half or something. So like <laughs> I had like a, a more than an inch of tool sticking out. Oh, bottomed out. Of, yeah, and I couldn't get it any further in without like cutting the tool off. Oh, fuck that. So. Uh, it's worth noting, I was buying... Um, so you, you can get two types of the hydraulic tool holds. You can get ones that take reducing sleeves mm-hmm. so that you can you know use them for a lot of different diameters. And then you can get ones that have like a dedicated diameter. Um, I bought two of the ones that had a dedicated quarter inch in a diameter. Okay. And I would never ever do that again for two reasons. One is if you break a tool or if you spin a tool or something, that whole tool hold is toast. Yeah. Like you know, it's just fucked. Like you've, you've ruined the inside bore. Whereas if you use the ones that take the reducing sleeves, then you just replace the reducing sleeve and you're good again. Now, is there an additional cost to that tool? Like buying a collet, like the reducing sleeve is yes, but $30 or something. Yeah. They're more expensive than that. I think the shunk reducing sleeves are like 75 bucks, something like that. However, Maritool is also selling reducing sleeves now and they're 25 bucks. So So, they're very reasonable. Um, and then the other thing that I, 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 I don't hundred percent know that this is true, but my understanding from, uh, I've met one of the shunk tool reps at, um, CMTS a couple of years ago. And he said to me that using the, so the, the tool holders that take the reducing sleeves have a three quarter inch inside bore. And because there's a larger surface area in the like hydraulic pocket, it actually produces more clamping force, which then gets transferred mm. down to the smaller shank. Whereas if you're using one of the ones that has a quarter inch bore, then the it has like an internal pocket that's full of hydraulic fluid that surrounds the, the cutting tool, like the inside of the bore. But with the dedicated quarter inch holder, that, that cavity is smaller. So it actually produces less force. Cool. So th- that was how he explained it to me. So... I would definitely say you use the ones that have reducing sleeves. Um, it just seems like it makes a lot more sense. I, w- I was just uh, checking out those the other this week, mm. the Tendo stuff, just because there's no need for it. <laughs> so that's why I like it. <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> way over overkill. Right, it's like shopping for a Lamborghini when you just don't need <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but they do look awesome. I was mm-hmm. curious about the price. That's yeah, that's more more than I need to spend. Well, seeing as we're on the topic of shopping for a Lamborghini, after <laughs> last week's episode when we were talking about the Okuma Genos machines, um, you bought one. Well, no, I, I wish I was. Wish I had that. Uh, you know, the Mastercard Black Card. I could just go put <laughs> one on my credit card. No, but I did start looking at used ones because you oh. asked, like, oh, you would buy it used, obviously, and I was like, you know. No. Did I say that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'd never really looked at used ones. And it turns out you can get a used one, you know, like 2013, 2015 kind of vintage for around 80K US. Okay. Yeah. That's a significant savings. Yeah. Down from like 130. And could you still, I mean, I guess you could go to the bank and get a loan for that as opposed to doing it directly through the machine. But, um, yeah i don't know i think that um leasing companies and banks are a bit more hesitant when it comes to used machinery um but you know maybe you could do some deal where you get like a cnc technician to come in and certify that it's good or something Mm -hmm. you know um they're obviously not going to be able to catch anything that's everything that's kind of bullshit but you know maybe that's a thing yeah if it's in good shape i mean i think there's there's probably lots of telltale signs we talked about this because i looked at buying used as well, I mm-hmm. think it's just smart to to know what the options are. Yeah, what your right. options are, um, and that was you were going to come with me. We were going to go check out a VF six. Right. Which, thank God we didn't buy that. It would have been huge. Would have been amazing. Um, but yeah, like I think you were even saying, it's like you can tell a lot 
from an initial eyeballing. Has the machine been taken care of? Has it been run hard? Yep. But certainly there'd be a lot that you can't, yeah, so you can't learn. If you're shopping for a used machine, there's definitely signs. Like looking for chip scour inside the enclosure. Like, you know, how much right. paint is missing? Um, yeah. You know, if, if all the paint is gone, then like that's a sign that machine's done a lot of hours for sure. You know, mm-hmm. most machines have a um, like a, a lifetime counter that, you know, counts how many spindle hours they have, like how many hours mm-hmm. they've had with the spindle running. And then, yeah, just taking like a Cat 40 um, test bar, you know, and blowing it up, putting it in the cartridge, in, in the spindle, sorry, having a look at the contact pattern, you know, is the spindle bell-mouthed? Is it scratched or other or dented or worn? You know, like what's the run out like at the end uh-huh. of the test bar? Um, how does the spindle sound? Um, you know, test backlash in the in the three axes. Like th- those are all things that you can do with just like, you know, a Cat 40 test bar and a dial indicator. Sure. And you could if you wanted, if you're going to spend 80 grand on a machine. Oh, yeah. Maybe get someone with a Redishaw ball bar. Yes. Yeah, that would be like the next level. Yeah. Um, and somebody, I mean, I guess you could learn a lot just from looking at the, the electronics in the back. See if, I mean, you've restored a machine. Can you tell if shit's fried? <laughs> Um, not really if it's fried, but you know, if you looked in the back and all of the filters were really dirty and there was like a bunch of dust in the electronics enclosures and stuff, you know, like there's definitely signs when someone's taking care of a machine and when they haven't, um, you know, I was looking at photos of a machine today and they'd been writing all over it in Sharpie, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, I'm not sure that that's a good sign for that, for that machine. Right. Um, It's a level of respect. Yeah, exactly. So, Yeah. Or just going. I think this is the other thing you said. You asked me when we went to go, we were going to go look at this machine. Is it at the original, mm. like owner's facility? Because you walk into that shop, is the is the shop a shithole? Yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. Or is it is it a really nice space? Because that's an indicator of how well the machine was taken care of. This one, the VF six, we were going to look at was already at the resellers. Right. And it was not under power. Yeah. Which is, I would never buy a machine that I couldn't inspect under power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was like, not going to put it under power for us. Yeah, fuck that. So we didn't bother. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would rather buy a machine with more hours on it that's in a really clean facility where they do their preventative maintenance properly, as opposed yeah. to a machine with you know half the hours that's in like you know a shop where every surface is black and like <laughs> they've never changed the oil in it. You know, like right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Like honestly, like. Yeah, eighty grand US for for Nakuma. That's getting into the realm of tempting. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, okay. So I know that um, this is a much more specific machine, hmm. but uh, Grimsmo bought a uh, a Williman. A what? Willeman. Oh, these are the ones with the like the weird kind of curved it's a bar front. fed lathe slash cnc uh mill that's weird oh i i haven't even seen that on his it's bar fed it's got a um it's got a five axis head i don't know if you would actually call it a five axis head it's a head that can that can spin rotate at least 90 degrees oh it's a multitasking machine is that what you i would say yeah so it has like a lathe on the left and then a spindle that can move in x and z and rotate, right? Yes, I believe like so. Tilt. And then it's got a clamp that'll come up and grab the part, and then you can machine after oh, you've weird. parted it. You can machine it. Crazy. Um, anyways, yeah, they're like eight hundred grand new, and I think he got it for 80, 80 grand. <laughs> right. I, maybe because it's such a specific machine. Right. Might have been. I think it's eighteen years old or something like that. Was this a recent purchase for him? Or yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I'll have to go check out his Instagram and have a look at it um really cool seems like a really smart buy in terms of like purchasing a used tool mm-hmm. uh because you would i mean that's a huge that would be a huge investment to buy one of those new yeah and something uh, like that's that's bar fed you could potentially get a lot of unattended runtime out of that and i know that's something yeah. that he's like focusing on at the moment with you know the pallet pool and the kern right bar fed leaves and um, and it just was, I, I hadn't thought about the used market in a while until hearing that. Mm. And then now you're talking about it. Made me think twice about, about 
what you could, you know, the value of a used machine. Like you could get, yeah. like you're saying, a, that's maybe not your dream machine, but it's a dream machine um, no, I, for the, really good value. Yeah. I mean, the Okuma is up way up there in terms of yeah. like my dream machines. You know, I think the only level higher than that would be like a Makino F5. Right. But and how much do those go for? Used. I don't know. I, I've never actually seen a price on one. I don't know about what used. if you could get like a two thousand and five for right? You know, eighty grand. Uh, how good would that machine be? Still, probably really good. The, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I'm just making these numbers up. But. Right. The one of the issues is that you get into the realm where it starts to become really risky because parts for a used machine could be like astronomically expensive. You know, so like a spindle on a Makino F5 is going to probably be like 40k to replace right. or like 35 yeah. or something you know like they're That's really fancy spindles and then that machine is like linear scales on every axis core cooled ball screw uh ball screws on every axis um you know spindle chiller like the whole frame is chilled <laughs> like there's so, so much stuff to go wrong potentially the fancier it is the more potential maintenance or new parts it might need maybe yeah like the fancier it is, the more expensive it's going to fix, be to fix if something has gone wrong. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the other issue for me right now is just that I don't really have space to put a machine like the Okuma. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like my current machines just fit into my shop. <laughs> like one of them, we couldn't, I couldn't get the cable chain to come down low enough. So I had to tell the riggers, you know what, just take a running start. <laughs> just like smush it under the door it'll be fine <laughs> and it, it, we did and it, it was it was fine how was the door fine no problems <laughs> but you know like you know some a machine like the akuma like there's just no way i'd have to like cut the wall out of my shop you know right okay so, so yeah i think that's something that i would look at more seriously when i'm able to build a shop on my own property which is hopefully you know a couple of years away um and yeah, in the meantime, I'll be putting that that money toward the property rather than the machine, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're doing a lot with those machines you've got. So mm-hmm. fun to dream, though. Oh, it's so fun. Uh, speaking of dreaming, we're all about the smooth segues today. Let's talk about space. <laughs> speaking of space. Speaking of space, let's talk about dreaming. No. So um, I don't know if you saw this, but Jeff Bezos went to space uh, I yesterday. did see this. As of I yesterday. did see this. What did What did you? Yeah, think he wasn't this? answering my calls, and I was like, what "Where are you, buddy?" This <laughs> Sorry, no, no um, cell reception in space. <laughs> probably the best cell reception. Mm. Mm. So close to those satellites. <laughs> so, what did you think of all of this? What did like? So they took like uh, four other people. I think it was five people total. Yeah, um, I thought it was really cool. He took that um, astronaut that. My understanding was she'd never been to space. She mm. had trained to go to space, but didn't get to go. Ended up on a bunch of scrubbed missions, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. But that's really cool. And then he took like an 18-year-old kid. Really cool. And his brother. Right. I, yeah, so, I'm going to be a little contrary on this one. I think it's the least important thing to happen to space in quite a while. Because <laughs> um, like, the whole mission was like literally... 15 minutes or like 20 minutes right like yeah they were so they were in space for 10 minutes or something or 11 minutes i thought yeah yeah you know so it's a suborbital flight of a tiny rocket that can't do any real work with you know mainly rich people on it <laughs> like for me it was just it felt very unimportant you know um well it's the i guess it's it's space tourism it's mm-hmm. like this is maybe his his goal is to just make money on sending people to suborbital space. Yeah. Which I mean, I guess that's fine as like a business model, but like in terms of like making the world a better place, I don't think it matters at all. <laughs> you know, how about for resources? Like, is that burning a lot of rocket fuel? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I believe it's using RP one. So, like, refined kerosene, basically, as the fuel and liquid oxygen. I'd have to double-check on that. I'm, I'm speaking out my ass on that. Um, that's probably the most common fuel, though, so it's a fairly good bet. 
so yeah, you know, it's definitely like burning up a bunch of <laughs> fossilized dinosaurs to put tourists in space. Yeah. Um, what did so did you go back and look at the Richard Branson thing? Uh, very briefly, very briefly, and I mean honestly, the the Richard Branson thing too. Like so that he Virgin has like two space companies now. They have Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit. And I believe Virgin Orbit was kind of like a split off of Galactic. And so Galactic is focused on space tourism and then Orbit is focused on doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't really feel that excited about like super rich people going to space for five minutes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I thought his plane looked cooler. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, but yeah, well, Jeff Bezos's plane looked like something, you know, <laughs> something out of um, Austin Powers. Yeah, I saw a lot of the Austin Powers references because yeah. he does look like Doctor Evil. I think the one of the funniest things that came out of that whole thing. I'm not sure if you saw this, but there was a clip where he was like talking to the media, and he made like possibly the most tone deaf comment of all time. He just like kind of said with this like shit-eating grin on his face. He's like, I just want to thank all the Amazon customers and employees because you made all of this possible. <laughs> you know, and it was just, yeah, it was like, funny. it could have been heartfelt, but instead the tone of it was like, you know, like, fuck you guys. You made me rich. Thanks for that. You know, like, yeah, it was just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, as I said, it's just, I, I don't know. I just can't get all that excited about it. Yeah. It didn't seem that cool but on the other side for actually cool stuff spacex did their uh first successful static fire test for the uh super heavy booster which is the the booster the the largest rocket in the world that's going to launch starship into orbit um and that's super exciting because it means they're getting closer and closer to the first orbital test for starship um, so <laughs> Musk has said it's supposed to happen in July. Like there's no way it's going to happen in July, but they <laughs> do have flight plans filed, um, for August. So we could be seeing the very first flight of the world's most powerful rocket within a month or two. Wow. Well, that'll be cool. Yeah. Maybe I should tune in for that instead of Bezos's trips. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be interesting cause they're going to be ditching, uh, I believe they're ditching both stages in the ocean for this first launch um, because they don't want to risk like trying to land stuff and have it blow up. Because this is supposed to be reusable? Yes. Yes. So that's that's one of the other things is that both the first stage and the second stage of this particular rocket will be like fully reusable. And their goal is that it's going to be like reusing an airliner that will be literally be like refueling. You know, if all the instruments read green, then you just send it straight back up. And would it, how do they land if it, they weren't dropping it right into the ocean? Are they landing with, like, you know, a parachute just wherever? Or is it, like, landing on a target? It's um, landing on a target. So it, it is the first stage is flying itself back and landing vertically. Um, so they're basically doing what's called a propulsive landing. So they're actually using the engines to, to come in and land. But even nuttier, um, they want to save the weight of the landing legs. So right now, the current versions have like these little stumpy landing legs. Um, and they're actually single-use landing legs. They're, uh, they have like a crush zone. So they actually oh. like, deform to absorb the, the shock of landing. And so what they're actually going to try and do is to catch the rocket. So it's going to land itself in between like a pair of big arms. And then huh. just before it hits the ground, the arms are just going to catch it. What? Yeah. So they, so they can be that accurate? That's the goal. Like, that's one of the things that they're um, having to, like, validate right now is that they can land with, like, sub one meter accuracy. Whoa. Yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. Um, you know, and that's the stuff that, as I said, like, that's what really gets me fired up. Like, they're aiming, Musk is still saying that they're aiming to get the cost per launch for an entire launch of Starship under $2 million. Right. So yeah, like pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, like two episodes ago we were talking about a small sat right now, the best kind of small sat cost. You know, if you want to get two hundred kilograms worth of satellite into orbit, that's a million dollars on Falcon. 
as part of their rideshare program. They're saying you'll be able to launch like tons. I, I think it's like 50 tons to orbit on Starship for $2 million. Yeah, I mean, that's probably game changer. Because how much are they going to charge? Well, that's what they're saying. They're saying like, oh, I, I don't know whether it's their cost or their price oh. is $2 million. I'm not sure. But I th- believe they were trying to say that their price would be $2 million. Oh, I thought you were saying the cost would be $2 million. No. So the price would have to be significantly less if they want to run a profit. Yeah, which is so it's pretty cool. pretty crazy, yeah. Um and the other what one What does their facility look like? Like the SpaceX like what are they manufacturing this? What kind of machinery do they have? They have some pretty crazy stuff actually. They do a lot of um metal 3D printing. Really? Um they have like a whole bunch of um VMCs and lathes and all, you know, the traditional stuff. But yeah, they mm-hmm. do a lot of um printing in like Inconel. Cool. Um and you know, various stainless steels and stuff. So that that technology is far enough along that you can use it for aerospace. Actually, put it into this into. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, uh, there's another um, company. I think it's called Relativity Space, and they are working on 3D printing the entire rocket, engines, structural members, every single part of the rocket is 3D printed. How feasible is that? Do you think? Um, I because that is wicked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I, they're like they have um like scale prototypes already printed, like they have their system you know working to an extent. I don't think that I've seen test fires of engines yet, but I believe they're getting close to that. Um, yeah. If you're interested, look up Relativity Space. I believe it's called. That would be madness. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so um, it's interesting because they're taking like alternative routes, right? Like, so SpaceX is basically trying to drive the cost down by reusing everything, you know? So it doesn't really matter what the initial cost to build the rocket is if you reuse it 300 times. Sure. You know, Um, whereas I think Relativity is trying to drive the price down by eliminating labor. Right. Right. Still wasteful then. Um, well, I mean, they, there's no reason why they can't do reusability as well. Oh, okay. Right. Um, but then, like, the, the question becomes, like, what kind of volume do you even need in terms of manufacturing if you're, like, not throwing them away? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. How many, how many people are in the market for a yeah. rocket ship? Now, that being said, SpaceX are um, planning to scale up their engine production to the point where they're producing two to three raptor engines per day what yeah so the the what main are they gonna do with them all well so they they need a they want to have a fleet of starships running so they want to have like you know, i don't know 20 or 30 starships they want to be doing like multiple launches a day is their goal um and to get to that point so the the each starship is going to have 33 raptor engines on the the main stage and then six Raptor engines on the second stage, three um, atmospheric engines and three vacuum optimized engines. So what, that's uh, 39 engines per rocket times like 30 rockets. And then, you know, to account for like, initially they're going to have losses. They're going to have rockets that crash or, you know, parts that wear out earlier than expected or whatever, right? So I guess they're just like putting this, production line into into right. operation and they're already making like one engine every two days wow which is crazy like totally crazy given you know the complexity of the engines they're building so what a facility that must be yeah i've seen some photos inside and it looks really really cool like it's is it pretty are they pretty um top secret uh, i don't think so I think you can like get a tour if you're, you know, like not Joe, Joe average. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I haven't really looked into it, but I would love to go have a poke around. No kidding. It'd be very, very cool. Um, 
and yeah, if if you're so like building rockets, like really interests me. It's something that's super cool. And like I've talked, I think I talked to you a while back about this YouTube channel that I'm kind of addicted to called Tech Ingredients. Uh, sounds familiar, yeah. So the guy that runs the channel, I don't know whether he was like previously a professor or something. Like he has this ability to to break down a really complicated topic in almost like a lecture format. But because he's like in his shop as he's talking about it, he it's very approachable. Like he it's, you know, very, very cool. Like he's actually like he'll talk to you about the theoretical side of building rocket engines, like solid rocket motors, and then make one <laughs> while you're watching. You know, it's super cool. Um, and they've just started getting into a series about building hybrid rockets. Um, so that's where you have a solid fuel and then a liquid or a gas opti- uh, oxidizer. Um, so, yeah, like you could literally build like a pretty high performance rocket engine in your shop if you wanted to. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you're interested. If I want to transition. Yeah, from guitars uh... to rockets. <laughs> it's the obvious next step. Um, or just combine the two. Mm-hmm. And if you want to see a lighter take on this same topic, um, Mythbusters did an episode where they made a hybrid rocket motor using salami as the fuel. <laughs> How does that work? Because uh, you can use anything that will combust as the fuel. Salami will combust? Well, if you spray liquid nitrous oxide on it, apparently the answer is yes. Okay. Yeah, myth busted. <laughs> uh, it's a very funny episode because um, Adam uses Jamie's really nice metal lathe to drill a salami, oh, no. and then just leaves like meat chips everywhere. And Jamie, <laughs> you know, twirls his mustache in a very angry fashion. Right. It's very very funny. That's as much as you get out of that guy. Yeah, I think off camera well, there might have been a bit more heat. Adam what kind of lathe? Oh, I don't remember exactly, but it looked nice. Mm. You know, you never want to, you never want to put salami all over a man's lathe. No, never I mean, put your salami that, on somebody else's lathe, Nick. That goes without saying. Yeah, or mill. Yeah, it's not lathe exclusive rule. That is very true. It's very true. Um, uh, speaking of salami. Oh no. Um, do we have any listener questions? Uh, we had one, which is kind, it's kind of a question. Um, so Eric from Elson Knives on Instagram, uh, DM'd me last week saying, uh, PCD diamond tooling, like how, what do you think of it? So, uh, uh, 18 months ago, I transitioned from using carbide tooling to diamond tooling for machining my G10. Yes. No, we all know you're a big fan of diamonds. Oh, dude. But, like, I've actually saved money at this point. Really? Yeah. I mean, the diamond tools aren't cheap. It's, like, 200 bucks for one tool. But previously, I was changing. So, I use a 3.8 diameter ball nose tool for doing the 3D contouring on the handle scales. Mm-hmm. And previously, I would have to change tools every three weeks. You okay. know, so that's, like, a, what, a like $30 tool? Um, and so that means I would have had to make like 15 tool changes, something like that. Right. You know, so that's like $450 worth of carbide tools in a year or one $200 diamond tool. Oh, okay. One will last that long. I'm still on the first one and the finish is still like day one. Like I cannot tell any difference in dimension or finish, uh, versus brand new on that tool. And PCD is what, what are you sorry what are you machining with it um Not G10 steel. okay for all right yeah so you can use diamond for non-ferrous metal so you can use it for brass aluminum um I believe you can even get into like titanium and stuff the don't quote me on that because I haven't mm-hmm. haven't really heard much about that and then um green ceramics so like unfired ceramics that would normally destroy right. a carbide tool in like seconds yeah. um Composites like carbon fiber and G10, which is what I'm using it for. So G10 is super abrasive because you have a bunch of like glass fibers in the material sure. that are basically acting like little sanding sticks, you know? So like the the sharp edge on a carbide tool will be gone within like hours when you're cutting yeah. G10. And it still cuts okay. Um, 
and you might even be holding tolerance, but the surface finish just gets worse and worse because it's like kind of tearing up the fibers rather than cutting them. Um, and you can use PCD diamond for plastics, cutting plastics so as well. What what does it look like? Is it is it a straight flute? It is a straight flute. It looks okay. like a um, braised carbide woodworking like a wood router a bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have like it's actually a really thin wafer of the polycrystalline diamond. I would say it's only 20 or 30 thou thick oh. and that's braised to a carbide backer. And then the carbide backer is braised to either a carbide shank or a high speed steel shank. I believe they're carbide shanks from Maritool. Mm -hmm. um, and then the whole thing is ground to the, the final shape of the, the end mill. And so, I mean, for me, the disadvantages are it creates more fine dust because you have no, um, like, rake. You know, it's like, it's just a 90-degree yeah. cutting edge. There's no... It's not shearing. It's not shearing, no. So with G10, it just kind of scrapes it, you know, like turns right. it into dust. Um, and because it's a straight flute, it also kind of hammers in and out of the cut, right? So it makes more dust. It's a bit noisier. Um, and... I've never seen a four flute tool. I've only, so like the three eighth tool flute. that I'm using is, yeah, three eighth flute, ugh, three eighth diameter tool that I'm using is only two flute. Um, and once you go down to like one eighth, you can only get single flute. Hmm. Um, so those are the disadvantages. The advantages are <laughs> like set up the tool, dial in your tolerance, and then never touch it again. You know, for like, a year. Well, 18 months. I've been running that one tool months, for 18 right. months. Holy shit. Yeah. So and like, if you can you inspect it, do you have like a loop where you can like get your eyeball on it and see how what kind of shape it's in? Um yeah, sure. I could I could um take some like macro photos and post them on the Instagram for the XYZ podcast. That would be cool. Yeah, I'll do that uh tomorrow good before shape, I though. release the podcast. Man, as soon as I, as far as I can tell, it's like brand new. Like the the surface finish on the G10, like you 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 know clean it, you put a little bit of oil on it, and then dry it, and it's like a mirror. It's like wow. perfectly smooth. How do you think it'd do for wood? I think it'd do fantastic. We we, Mark is keen on on this idea as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so one interesting thing is you can buy PCD diamond inserts for a lot of different styles of face mills. Mm. Um, and if you buy them from China, they're really cheap. Interesting. Like a pair for like 20 bucks. And are they good quality? I have no idea. Right. No idea. I mean, the nice thing is that, um, you know, so on most inserts for end mill, for face mills and stuff, you'll get like, you know, two to four cutting edges. When you buy a diamond insert, you're only getting one cutting edge. It's only one corner of the insert that actually has the diamond on it. Oh, okay. So they're not having to use a lot of diamond. You so know. that might uh, explain the price. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, like, if you want the best possible finish out of that kind of a process, you could just use only one insert in your face mill and basically mm -hmm. turn it into a diamond-tipped fly cutter. Right. Um, you know, obviously that's going to really reduce your ability to remove material, but for a finishing operation... So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I said to Eric, um, I'm a huge fan of the PCD Diamond tools. The only disadvantage to them really is, well, uh, your roughing isn't going to be as fast. I don't use mine as a rougher. I use it only as a finisher. And then um, I actually have a separate 3 8 ball nose, uh, like a carbide tool for flute that I use as my rougher. And that has also been in the machine for 18 months. Wow. Um, because carbide tools last a really long time in G10 if surface finish isn't an issue. Right. Right. And <laughs> if, if tolerance isn't an issue. It's just moving a lot of material out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I changed over from using just one 3 8 carbide tool to using the 3 8 carbide tool for roughing and then the PC diamond tool for finishing. And then I just haven't <laughs> changed a tool since, <laughs> which is crazy to me. That's sick. Yeah. So I am going to... I have a couple of um, hole making operations where I'm doing a helical interpolation to make some some holes in the handle scales, and right now those are still using carbide tooling. I am planning to switch those over to diamond tooling as well. That's nice because 
then your hole tolerance, if the tool is going to last a lot longer, your hole tolerance yeah. won't go out as frequently. Exactly. And the other issue for me is that um, when you're breaking through the backside um, in G10, if the tool isn't like perfectly sharp, you'll always get some fraying on the underside. Mm. And oftentimes you'll actually get like a trapdoor. <laughs> like it'll cut out like a circle of oh. material that's kind of held on by some frayed bits. Right. And then you have to like go in and remove that afterwards. Right. Um, so I think the diamond tooling is going to like totally get rid of that. Cool. Yeah. I didn't, I, I remember you saying that Mari tool sold these because of you, but I have never checked them out. They look cool. Yeah, and they're much less expensive than the other options. Like, you know, for a three eighths bull nose from other um, tool supplies, you'd be looking at like four hundred bucks. You know. Yeah. Um, whereas I think the pricing is like two hundred and thirty, something like that from from Marital. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. Uh, one thing I should do actually is ask Frank if he could get his supplier for the PCD Diamond Tools to start supplying him with um, SEHT inserts for yeah. his face mills. That'd be cool. I really want one of their uh, face mills and mm. that would make sense for us then. Yeah. And I think, I, do, I don't know if Marital sends, sells any round insert face mills. They don't. Okay. But for you guys, I think a round insert face mill would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it's like a, um, a toroidal cutter. So you can right. use it um, much more easily for doing like 3D contours over large shapes. Which yeah, is what so you're doing. we were talking about this for replacing when we're doing our big uh, art, like the arching, right? Which is a big 3D contour. Getting something like that that's like three quarters of an inch diameter or something like that. Um, well, I guess we'd probably still stick with half inch. Yeah, I mean, uh, you won't find too many inserted tools that are that small that have more yeah. than like one flute. Really, that might have been where we where we uh but how come you have to stay that oh you have to stay that small because you're trying to avoid the frame that's around the guitar right yeah right yeah but we could yeah no but i I, anyways we did look at those they look really cool but okay so my question is are they notched in any way so that when you go to turn them you you know you can clock it oh the round inserts yeah or is it just spin i'm not 100 sure I think, yeah, I think most of them don't really have much in the way of like clocking marks or anything Mm -hmm. on indexing marks. Because that would be handy. I mean, maybe you can just look at it. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the other thing is too, if you're taking a really shallow depth of cut with one of those, like if you're just using it as a finisher, then the worn portion of your insert is going to be much smaller than if you're using it as a rougher. So it's kind of nice to have the option to choose how much you're turning it. Sure. Yeah, you don't want to waste any section of it. Yeah, because if you're just using it as a finisher, you might get like ten indexes. You know, whereas if you're mm-hmm. using it for roughing, you might only get three. Right. Um, so I think that might be one reason why it would be nice to not have like indexes. Yeah, it might be better not to. Yeah. But yeah, so anyone that's considering PCD diamond for for composites, I think for wood, um, for anything that's abrasive, go for it. Hundred percent, and then you know the other applications. Like I'm considering whether I should look into diamond tooling for cutting my sheaths, because um, that's quite a soft plastic. Mm-hmm. But I do get tools wearing out over time, mainly by edge chipping, um, and I wonder whether you know switching to PCD diamond would basically give me like infinite tool life for that operation. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, maybe we should be using them for some of our plastic parts. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, if you're getting really long tool life anyway, it's probably not a big deal. Um, but for me in G10, it was a big pain in the ass. Like, every time right. I changed tools, I would my tolerance was all, all go to hell. And then, you know, I would get, like, three weeks of tool life out of each tool. And for the last, like, week and a half, the surface finish was, like, less than optimal. Mm-hmm. You know, so... It's yeah, it's been I've never really calculated the savings until now. Like I've literally saved like four hundred dollars US already. Yeah, that's amazing. Just yeah. to put a little bit extra money down. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Good if job. anyone's thinking about it, go do it. All right. Well, you've got Aaron's uh blessing. 
Yes, and I will take some macro photos of the diamond tool because, yeah, now that you've asked the question, I'm curious myself to see what it looks like, mm -hmm. um, what the edges look like, and I will post that and um, yeah, go Makes check out the Instagram for that. Look at my tooling, mm. really, like at a macro level, see how they're looking. It is kind of interesting sometimes to see the failure modes. Like, you know, sometimes you'll think a tool's dulling when it's actually chipping. Right. Um, yeah, or, or you're destroying one part of the tool and that's causing issues, you know, like. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, I think we are done for the day, aren't we? Yeah, I'd say so. I should probably get back to work. Yeah, <laughs> you slack bastard. Get back to it. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, it was fun chatting with you as always. Uh, love doing the show and hope Likewise. everyone enjoyed it. Send send us your questions. If you have questions or um, you know want to ask us how some part of our process is working, how we like it. Um, if you want to see um, rocket guitars, <laughs> let us know. Or rocket knives. I would love to do that. Dude, we could just get a bunch of like hobby rocket motors and put them into one of your busted guitars and launch it. Yeah, actually, that'd be great. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, Sounds like fun. Cool. Come in. All right, bud. Uh, cool. I hope everyone enjoys the show. Have every, hope, uh, hope everyone has a good week. Send us your questions, and we will see you again next week. See ya. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.